And the Oscar goes to Bowling for Columbine, Michael Byrne, Michael Donovan. Uh, we like nonfiction. We like nonfiction, and we live in fictitious times. We live in a time where we have fictitious ele election results that elects a fictitious president. We, we live in a time where we have a man sending us to war for fictitious reasons. Shame on you, Mr. Bush. Shame on you. And any time you've got the Pope and the Dixie Chicks against you, your time is up. Michael Moore has gone to lose, is going to lose the title. This is It Happened One Year, a look back at the events, big and small, famed and forgotten from 1994. Hey everybody, uh, welcome to the show. We're here doing it again. Number, I don't know what order these episodes are going in. <laughs> Number something. Great, great to inform the listeners how, how hot <laughs> podcasting is working here for us. So we're not playing them in the order we recorded them? Ooh, interesting. <laughs> I don't know how long ago it is by now, but the Al Cowling's episode was, I think, literally the fifth episode we recorded. So if you've <laughs> noticed that the second episode's creaky, that's why. <laughs> yeah. Yep. One of the reasons I think we came up with uh, for landing on 1994, especially, was today's concept of an episode, which is a high concept episode that... I legitimately does not hold together as one story at all. No. But when I had said, I showed Sarah a list of things that I was coming up with that I really wanted to talk about. And I showed her the, the heavyweight boxing situation in 1994. And I put down Michael Moore. Do you remember what you exactly said in that, in regard to that or no? Probably made some dumb joke, but no, I don't, I don't remember exactly what I said. You did. It was a dumb joke saying about how uh, Michael Moore didn't appear to be in shape enough to fight for the heavyweight title. <laughs> so you needed Michael Moore. Yeah, that makes right. sense. That's yeah. a good joke. And so that was, that was where that came from. And then this gave me the idea, though. Michael Moore had a 94. Michael Moore had a 94. Is there a Michael Morris? And thus, Michael Moore, Michael Moore, Michael Morris. Today's episode. I'm sure going to be a complete masterpiece. I, just, <laughs> I, I love this concept so much. I can't even tell you. I just, it doesn't, it's not going to work in execution the way the title works in, in our minds and how much we love it, but we're going to give it a shot. Because these three people, I will guarantee you, we're never in the same room together. And I'm not sure even know each other exists. So. I, I do have to say that the first few times Joe presented this concept to me, I did love it, but I did not realize that the guy's name was Michael Morris not Michael Morris. And it took me a few times to realize that we were only approximating the third, the third Michael Moore. It's sort of just a bad series of pronunciations led us to Michael Morris because Mike Morris is not a name. As you can probably guess, I knew who Michael Moore and Michael Moore were. <laughs> I had to kind of uh, piece it together to find the third guy. There was a guy who directed episodes of Glee whose name is Michael Morris, but he was not doing anything in 1994. I think he was Damn it. 20 years old. He was not in the business. So I didn't want to dig into that guy's college shenanigans. So that's what we ended up with, Michael Morris-wise. So let's go ahead and kick it off with Michael Moore. Part one. 
Part one, Michael Moore in 1994 launched a TV show called TV Nation. Now, most of you probably have some sense of who Michael Moore is, but coming into 1994, Bro had already released his famous documentary, Roger and Me. He was from Flint, Michigan, and did a documentary about the closing of the of the automobile plants in Flint and the moving of the jobs to Mexico. So that documentary was his first like main thing that he was known for. He did a couple like smaller movies before that, but Roger and Me was really famous and was the highest grossing documentary of all time at the time until he took that record from himself with uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 uh, in 2004. He's yeah, like an integral part of Roger and me. Like he's the me and Roger and me. He is. And this yeah. became his style, basically, that he's personally in his documentaries, which isn't a real common thing. Yeah. Which is interesting then when you get into the TV show. So the TV show came out of basically they said to him, we want you to do a TV show. And the story goes that he was like brainstorming in the car on the way to meet the executives. and was just kind of like, I don't know. How about a documentary show? And they were like, that sounds great. And then they signed him up for it. But like his point was that the show, much like all of his documentaries, not only is he in them, but like they have a point of view. Like they're, he does not even pretend or want to be. And, and I guess most documentaries aren't, but like he has a perspective. He has a narrative that he's pushing. There was even some like criticism of Roger and me because of the way he portrayed some of the layoffs that happened in Detroit and, and the timing of them compared to when they actually happened to sort of like fit his narrative. But yeah, so he, the idea was like 60 minutes, but I think the phrase they used was on laughing gas, <laughs> which is a weird way to put it, but 60 minutes, but funny. Yeah. And, and with a very distinct point of view. But now the little bit we did watch of it, um, because it's not a real easy show to find. I don't think it's on DVD. I don't think it has that kind of mm -mm. second life, maybe, but I don't think so. It's I think not. The Awful Truth was more popular and probably has a little more still relevance to this day. Yeah. But the little bit we watched of TV Nation, it is a really funny show. Yeah, the thing about it is it was on NBC for a year and then NBC decided not to pick it up, but Fox picked it up. So it was on Fox for a year and it won awards like it won. There was an Emmy at the time that was like best informational show or something. And I don't know who they were up against, like, I don't know, Sesame Street. I don't yeah, know who they PBS. were up against, but, but they did win. They won best informational show. He also, as part of a segment on the show hired a lobbyist to lobby I think it was the US Congress or or some representatives to get a day declared TV Nation Day. Oh. So yeah, like it, it got some acclaim. The third year never happened, but the BBC actually raised enough money to fund a third year, but they didn't have anywhere to air it on American television. So they didn't. But it did air on the the first two seasons did air on the BBC too. Yeah, you would have think they would have been able to like keep that going a little bit that, that there would have been at least enough interest but yeah no i thought that like the bit we watched where you know in 1994 again considering the climate of the country was a pretty conservative time like there was this backlash going on against clinton and liberals and stuff like that for the show to really tackle a lot of stuff like you know building for profit prisons and yeah. general racism like racism in 94 is is a a weirdly controversial topic to put on television. You know? Yeah. They did a whole segment about like cab drivers picking up African-American men in New York city. It was really interesting. Yellow cabs don't stop for black men down here. Mm -hmm. Even black drivers don't stop for black men. Is it just me or is it about race? Now here's the experiment on one corner, distinguished black actor, Yafet Koda. 
You've tried to get cabs in New York before. All my life, all my life, all my life, all my life. And uh, have you got any? Never, 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 never. <laughs> a little way down the block, convicted white felon, Louis Bruno. But it's funny, like, they didn't show, I couldn't get to all the topics that TV Nation covered, but in 1999, just five years later, he was back at it with a show called The Awful Truth, which was basically the same show. Like, it, he basically did the same thing. I, it seems like the the concept and the segments might have been tighter than, mm. than TV Nation, but very similar. And they did this list of all the topics they covered, and some of them were would be considered controversial today. There was one where they... <laughs> they called it the Sodomobile and they put gay men and women in this big pink van and drove it around to cities and states where there were sodomy laws to protest for gay rights. Um, like really like progressive stuff in 1999. Some stuff that would not necessarily that, but other things that would, would be progressive now. And, but, yeah. and also a lot of the same topics that we are protesting and talking about now yeah. in the national discourse. So it was, it's really interesting and kind of sad to see how a 20 plus years later and we haven't made any progress at all on some yeah. of these things. I think that the thing with TV Nation, it feels a little dated. Like some of the stuff in it is a little post-Cold War- uh, mentality. Yeah. It, it seems a little more otherism and and trying to be more of a global citizen type stuff. Sounds like the awful truth was probably more cultural relevant stuff. It's just that Michael more than I don't think it's associated with any of this stuff as much credit as he still gets for Roger and me. And rightfully so. I mean, that's a, such a big story in Michigan and, and in the whole Rust Belt, really, about the, the kind of falling off of this part of the country. It's only later that he really becomes so focused on just politics and 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 mostly war and because there is so much war after a certain point and things like that 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 seems to become his main focus not not entirely he did do some other documentaries that covered the healthcare system and things like that yeah but well, I mean, he was really successful with war, for lack of a better way to describe it. Like Fahrenheit 9-11 did become, which came out in 2004, did become the highest grossing documentary of all times. We didn't know until we looked it up. It actually did make more money than March of the Penguins. So oh. way to go, America. But I mean, if you look at his later documentaries, the narrative on him doesn't start to decline until honestly Fahrenheit 11.9, which was politics. But like Sicko is supposed to be amazing. I've never seen it, but it's about the healthcare system. So it's politics, but not really war. And then, of course, after both TV Nation and The Awful Truth, which were heavy in politics, his career really took off with Bowling for Columbine, which came out in right. 2002, yeah. um, which was all about, you know, the the gun lobby and kind of kick, kicked off from or wasn't inspired by that's not the right way to say it by the shooting in Columbine and so I think the I, I do think he is is most often equated with war though I I think he's he's been pretty consistent in terms of left-wing populist politics since the beginning honestly like you can trace that all the way back to Roger and me that his perspective and his point of view and the, the types of topics that he covers remain in the same vein, but he will, you know, he seems to be really behind a cause because when he puts out a movie, then he is vocal in for that cause. He is visible in protests around that cause. And I'm not saying that in a cynical way because it has anything to do with promoting movie, but I'm just saying it seems like he gets really deep in his topics and then becomes uh, a more vocal activist around it when we're thinking about it and talking about it. Well, you get the impression he doesn't make movies to make money. Like he's making it because he believes in these causes. Oh, yeah. And I think that that does come through. What I mean more is that something like Roger and Me or Bowling for Columbine, as much as they might be controversial to the extreme right, 
there's not too many people who are going to be so super capitalist. They don't feel a little bad for what happened to Flint. And nobody feel like nobody doesn't feel bad about school shootings and what happens there. Yeah. It's just that then it becomes gun rights, which is a different issue. What I mean is more that like when he wins the Oscar for Bowling for Columbine, right? His Oscar speech is very much this anti-Bush speech, which isn't anything to do with what's going on in Bowling for Columbine. Like this is now talking about the time that it was 2000, the spring of 2003. I think he wins that Oscar for yep. the 2002 movie. Yep. So now we're in the war. Like that's, it's a war thing. And this, I think, is when things start to kind of go wrong for him because the war wasn't controversial at first. Everybody was so, yeah, you know, so gung ho about this. Like Bush's approval rating was 90%. Like everybody was so for it. So I think that that's what sort of undoes him just because of that. And which isn't really fair. It's like the Dixie Chicks. Like it's something I think everybody comes around to the idea like they were right at the time, but at the time they got a lot of criticism because the people didn't want to hear this or something like that. That would be my guess. I think that Michael Moore's tendency to put himself in his stories to such a degree that he does created a lot of this problem for him where he's so visibly involved in these things that he kind of became a, a an object of ridicule a little bit for that just because he's, he's so passionate and he's so visible where there's not really a lot of documentary filmmakers like that, especially about these sorts of topics. And so like, the South Park guys putting him in Team America he is so extreme and he's such a buffoon that I think that that kind of stuck in people's minds, like that this is what this guy is, you know, and fair or unfair, like that was their version of, of satirizing what he does. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. And and as I was reading through some of what he did post Fahrenheit 9-11, you know, he he did a movie on the financial crisis, you know, he, he got into the healthcare system. And even though he was supporting what would be considered democratic causes, he is so far to the left that he he just ripped apart Obamacare. And then there's like a, a line at the bottom that's like, well, it's still pretty good that we did it. But right. basically like scathing commentary because he's he's Bernie. He's a democratic socialist. He's on that side, that that left wing populism that is sometimes a little bit controversial for being maybe too far to the left for some people. And I, I think that's a, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I really like Michael Moore. I think that he's really entertaining and I think his documentaries are informative. The question does come up, you know, are they a little too one-sided and to, to really be effective in a broad way? And that might be fair, but I still think that he's on the right side issues wise and his, you know, he's, he's trying his best in his, in his manner. And I think that it's nice to see that he's stayed consistent. Like the yeah. fact that he would still be actually kind of like railing against Obamacare, which is so obviously a, a public good, you know, but in that yeah. Bernie way, like it could be better and it could be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that was interesting to me sitting in the seat that I'm in about Fahrenheit 9-11 is the movie got delayed because he was originally signed on to work on it. With Harvey Weinstein. Ooh. And so it got delayed because all the stuff was coming out about Harvey. But he's like, you know, he's a Bernie bro. He's like a, a he was a Bernie bro before Bernie bros were a thing where he's like on this left wing populist. But this, you know, guy who's well known to sexually assault women for his entire career. That's cool. But well, yeah, Harvey, uh, Harvey's got a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of apologists because he was so involved in everything for so long. Yeah. And and as a filmmaker, he, you know, he brought a lot of good stuff to the films. But as a person, he's a monster. He's a so monster. it makes it tough. Yeah. This was about Fahrenheit 11.9, you mean, right? Oh, yes. Sorry. Yes. That was Fahrenheit 11.9, not Fahrenheit yeah, yeah. 9.11. Just Thank wanted you. to make, because I mean, that, that could not have happened in 2003. No, no, no. Nobody cared about what Harvey was doing in 2003. Yeah. So he's got an Oscar. He won an Emmy for... The Awful Truth or for? He did. He won for TV Nation. He won 
Um, I wrote it down so I remember an outstanding informational series Emmy. Nice. Um, so good for him. That show was also on the BFI's 100 Greatest TV Programs coming in at uh, number 90. Nice. And so, you know, it was it was generally regarded as a pretty good show. What I couldn't figure out as I did all my research is why they wouldn't pick it up. I don't actually yeah. know. I don't know if it was a there weren't enough topics, if he would run out of content. I, I don't know what happened, but NBC didn't pick it up. Then Fox didn't pick it up. But then they tried again with The Awful Truth. Where what what network was The Awful Truth on? It was actually on Bravo, but it was like funded by the UK. It was, oh. a, yeah, it was a weird situation. So even doing my research, I was a little bit confused as to where it came from. But I think the UK just really liked Michael Moore. I don't know. They're really into exactly. it. Yeah. But yeah, it was on Bravo in the US. Oh, okay. I always suspected that TV Nation was probably just a little too progressive for mainstream television in 94. And that might be why NBC and Fox didn't keep it going. Maybe they didn't realize quite what they were getting into with Michael Moore that I don't yeah. think he was going to do stuff just in the company line. That first episode of TV Nation when he goes to the, the GE plant in Mexico and talks very much about how he's this GE employee because of being with NBC seems seems a little risky for yeah. you know, your first episode. Yeah, so. for sure. So he's got this Oscar. He's got an Emmy. Do you think he's going to try to make a uh, sicko Broadway musical? Get that EGOT. <laughs> well, okay. So interesting story. He actually did a one-man Broadway play in 2017. I didn't realize there's a chance he already has a Tony. <laughs> yeah, he does not because it did not go well. Oh, like the time Muhammad Ali starred in a Broadway musical. Did he really? Yeah, when he was during his period where he wasn't boxing in like 1968, 69. So he actually was in a Broadway play that was called The Terms of My Surrender, and it mm. was an anti-Trump dramatic monologue in late 2017. Well, and that was not a big hit is what you're saying? It was not a big hit. So Trump actually tweeted about it and said it closed early. It did not. But it did not make its like potential gross. I believe the words I was reading in the review were echo chamber. Or <laughs> So I think Michael Moore kind of just got up on stage and told people who agree with him things that they both they all agree with. Yeah. Uh, but like in 2017, everyone was mad. No one could believe what was happening with the, the, the whole Trump thing. So I get the desire. But he is not going to get a Tony for that. Oh. Um, nor a Grammy for the album. I was hoping that he did a one man musical about like the healthcare system or I guess there's still time. Maybe he can. Maybe he will. Maybe if they make Team America into a Broadway show, he can yeah. put himself. Yeah, just get him right in there. Get that he got. <laughs> hey, anything's possible. He's only got an OE. EO. Oh. EO OE. <laughs> He's got the Maselli. I didn't even realize that should be a thing. <laughs> uh... We can start calling it that. Yes. That's great. <laughs> well, I think that, that cleans up Michael Moore. So yeah. when we come back, it's time to talk heavyweight boxing in 1994. Are you excited? I can't wait. I thought this would be right in your wheelhouse. We'll be right back. History teaches primordial perspiration should match with one style. Thus, new right guard, pure power, clear gel. It's clear without flaky white stuff. New right guard, clear gel. Anything less would be uncivilized. All right. Welcome back, everybody. And the question we're asking now is who is more Michael Moore than Michael Moore? So we're here to talk about Michael Moore. That's right. <laughs> it's more than Michael Moore. More Michael Moore than Michael Moore. In so many ways. Yes. So Michael Moore comes along at a really interesting time in heavyweight history. Now, your basic frame of reference on 1994 boxing is limited to what exactly? Um, people were probably boxing and that's unfortunate. 
I, I feel like I've dragged you to a lot of boxing in, in our day. And that's probably been what, four times? Yeah. In all the time we've known each other? Maybe that? Maybe, if that, right. yeah. So I think the, the real key thing to remember about 1994, because most people seem to remember Mike Tyson and then him biting off of Vander Holyfield's ear, maybe. And then yep. that's basically it for heavyweight boxing. Oh, he was in the hangover. Right. And then he was in the hangover. But he has nothing to do with boxing in 1994 because Mike Tyson was in jail. So what happened was Michael Moore uh, was a was a light heavyweight champion in the late 80s, early 90s. He's a WBO champion, so it's not quite as good. Are you familiar with Which the way? Means... Yeah, there's a I was going to ask. There's a series of federations that basically counsel boxing. There's the WBC, the WBA and the IBF are, have always been considered the main ones. I'm not really sure how this is anymore because the linear championship has changed so much in recent years, which is basically like you can trace who beat who all the way back to like Jack Dempsey to say who's the real champion, right? When you have all these different federations, they all have their own champions. It, it becomes this muddled group of, of people who all have a kind of a claim on it, right? You're saying and, a sport that is just about people punching each other in the face doesn't have a good foundational structure to determine who is best. Right, right. There might Shocker. be too much too much uh, impact trauma to really think clearly through all of this, I guess, because it is confusing. It seems like there should be one thing and this is what it is for the longest time. There's a, a boxing magazine called the ring and the ring would have the champion. And that was the champion. Like no matter what your federation said, the ring would basically say, this is the linear champion. This is the champion. This is who, who Muhammad Ali beat, who Larry Holmes beat. And then Mike Tyson, and it just keeps going in that way. Right. By 94, it's a little confused though. Michael Moore did have a piece of the heavyweight title before all of this. He was the WBO champion. The WBO is nothing. And no one pretends that it is, even at this point. The linear champion coming into 94 is Evander Holyfield, who had beaten and lost to and then re-beaten Riddick Bowe. But he had beaten Buster Douglas in 1990 to win the title. Buster Douglas had just beaten Mike Tyson. That's, that's how this line comes in. So this is so, okay. the heavyweight. Let me make sure I'm tracking. Tyson is the champion. He's the champion in 1990. In 1990. He's beaten by Douglas. Buster Douglas. Who was then beaten by... Holyfield. Holyfield, right. right. So Tyson to Douglas to Holyfield. Right. Holyfield loses and regains the title, but so that doesn't really matter. But coming into 94, Holyfield is the champion, right? Got it. Now, Evander Holyfield, at some point in early 1994, gets diagnosed with a heart condition and doesn't seem to care. It's later attributed maybe to him taking human growth hormone. And so that's why he ends up coming back. Shocker. So he fights Michael Moore and loses. He loses a split decision. Like, it's not like he gets his ass beat. He just loses. And now Michael Moore, who is this kind of half-assed champion already, is the linear champion, which is insane because Michael Moore is kind of nobody. He's undefeated coming into 94. So it's kind of hard to, like, totally slam the guy. But... He fought a lot of light heavyweights and he didn't fight anybody all that significant as a heavyweight before he fights Holyfield, right? So then for a hot six months, Michael Moore is the champion. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, George Foreman has returned to boxing. <laughs> he sold some grills. He got out of the grill business back into boxing. Now, the grill business literally starts in 94. Oh, does it really? It does. The a big year for Foreman. Good the job. The Foreman Grill in 94 was created. That was its, that's its birthplace. No, if you go back to George Foreman, what do you know about George Foreman from the 1970s? Oh, uh, he was probably thinking about grills. That's all I got. So your, I mean, your frame of reference with George Foreman is literally he just makes hamburgers. Yes. That's it. 
That's correct. Oh, I think he was a boxer. That's, was that's a boxer. what I saw. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. George Foreman uh, won an Olympic medal in the 60s. Right? Oh, wow. Good he, for was him. A, he was a boxer from way back. So he became the heavyweight champion. I don't want to go through the whole Foreman thing. He became a heavyweight champion in the 70s after Ali had been forced to retire, sort of, because he wouldn't go into the draft. I wouldn't say he retired. He was banned from boxing. Joe Frazier became champion. Foreman beats Frazier. Foreman's the champion. In 74, he famously has the rumble in the jungle with Ali, and he loses. And at that point, Foreman was undefeated. Foreman was a devastating heavyweight boxer in the 70s. Like, he would flatten people. As hard a time as Ali had with Joe Frazier and with Ken Norton, Foreman destroyed them. Like, he walked through them. Like, they weren't even there. So He's a big dude. He was a big dude. I'm sorry you want to jump in. I didn't realize. I do. I want to. I want to. I you continue. have no frame of reference about who George Foreman was in the 70s. <laughs> well, I know he was a big dude. But he was barbecuing. That's all you've got. And yeah. Well, I mean, to come up with an idea that could, you got to be thinking about it early. That's fair. All right. To cut to the chase, <laughs> he loses to Ali in 74. He retires by 77. He's only like 28 years old, when, or 29, I think, when he retires. So he just wants to get out of boxing. And for 10 years, he doesn't box. In 87, he comes back change of heart he'd been doing uh, i think he was like a pastor somewhere he was doing some religious service stuff he probably ran out of money and probably needed some money to start up the grill business and this is his long-term plan yes by 87 back in the game so he's decided i need to scare up that scratch and so in the next like three four years he fights a lot he won 24 straight fights from 87 to 91 it's pretty good so yeah he's and, and again he's an old man at this point like he's solidly 40 41 42 which this is too old to be fighting and before george foreman there weren't people really fighting at this age not really there's a couple examples but it's pretty rare archie moore fought until he was really old but it's pretty rare but he gets his first title shot in this new era against holyfield in 91 so this is holyfield in the first run after he had just beaten buster douglas and i think was part of the reason nobody really was giving holyfield a lot of credit as the champion because his defenses before he loses to Michael Moore are literally to George Foreman, who's 40, and to Larry Holmes, who's 40. Like, he's just fighting the old men of the time. And this isn't great. But Foreman somehow manages to get back into the whole, you know, rankings and build his way up. Even losing to Holyfield, he fights a couple more fights. His tune-up for the Michael Moore championship fight is against Tommy Morrison. Do you remember who Tommy Morrison was? Uh, didn't she write Beloved? wonderful <laughs> tommy morrison was in rocky five you remember rocky five yeah that was the one in russia oh boy so tommy morrison was a real boxer rocky five is not anyone's favorite rocky film <laughs> but he's in that movie and what people tend to forget is that tommy morrison was like i think he might have also been the wbo champion at one point like he was a half-assed champion and and he beats george foreman in 94 as his tune-up essentially to fight for the championship for whatever reason. Like after Tommy Morrison beats him, people are like, yeah, I guess let's put him in with the champ. I don't know. It was a weird turn of events. Well, I, I mean, people must have known that Michael Moore, not a super legitimate champ. I mean, Michael Moore had zero title defenses because he immediately loses to George Foreman. <laughs> Sad. Who again is now at this point, he's like 45. He's way up there. He's way too old to be the heavyweight champion. And on some level, George Foreman knows it because he does fight for a couple more years, technically as again, the linear champion. Like he beats Michael Moore. Like that's legitimately a thing. Belts get lost along the way. People get stripped and then other people have pieces of it. But he's technically still the heavyweight champion. George Foreman. Yeah. 
Can you get the heavyweight title and then just retire as the champion and be like, sorry, folks. There are sort of instances of that. It's it's rarer than you would think. But if you go back, Rocky Marciano retired as the champion. Um, he was undefeated. So that's like the one, the thing that always people hold up. Rocky Marciano was 49 and 0 and, and that was it. Yeah. But for the most part, people fight until they lose. That's just kind of how it is. Even Muhammad Ali had at the end was was losing to a, a bunch of people he shouldn't have been losing to. Yeah, that's because after you spend your life getting hit in the head for for your career, you're going to make bad decisions like you just are. George Foreman created that super popular grill. Well, he had been thinking about it for a long time, as we've already established. So it was just locked in. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. he was good to go. Yeah. So no, he fights a bunch of nobodies for the next couple of years. And then he loses in 97 to a guy named Shannon Briggs, which is nothing. It just, I mean, and then that's it. He's, he's out of the game. I believe Shannon Briggs lost to Lennox Lewis and then Lennox Lewis is the champion for a series of years. <laughs> Michael Moore did become the IBF champion again. IBF was an important belt. <laughs> no. <laughs> sure yeah important belt got it <laughs> you look from convinced. the is, is it because it's from the important belt federation <laughs> the important belt well if you name yourself the important belt you're going to be right. important there was yeah. also the ibc which was the important belt champion <laughs> i don't know who was the ibc champion because no one cares so there's an nabf there's a bunch of federations that had belts you're so. making this up no this is i swear this is true but uh, but Michael Moore did have a piece of the illegitimate championship later. Not the linear championship, just one of the main belts. WBA, WBC, IBF. And he won the IBF championship by beating a guy named Axel Schultz. I have no idea if Axel Schultz was anything. You are making up letters and names trying to tell a story, and our listeners are not going to stand for it. <laughs> this is true. Google, Google Axel Schultz right now. Couldn't if I wanted to. <laughs> that was not the Eddie Murphy character from uh, Beverly Hills Cop. He was an actual fighter, Axel Schultz. <laughs> I think he was probably from Germany with a name like Axel Schultz. That's my guess. Who might be correct. Uh, Michael Moore did fight Holyfield again in 97 when Holyfield was a contender. Holyfield was the champion in 97 because he beat Mike Tyson a couple times. You got me. You don't remember? You remember the Mike Tyson fight with with Holyfield. Oh, the ear thing. The ear thing. Yeah, Yeah, that's all. Yeah, I, I do remember that. Tyson gets out of jail in 95 and gets back to fighting. He's never exactly the same, but he had a piece of the title at some point in the in the mid to late 90s, as I recall. Again, probably one of the, the, the lousy belts, but he might have had a piece of the WBA. He just never became the linear champion again. He fought Holyfield twice. Holyfield beat him both times. The second time was the crazy fight with the ear. And then Tyson's career sort of peters out. He did fight Lennox Lewis, weirdly, at that pyramid in Memphis that we went to. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. Cool. Apparently, they held fights in there before it's it was a Gander Mountain now. or whatever it is. What is it? It's a Bass Pro Shop. It's a Bass Pro Shop, yeah. But uh, yeah, he fought him in the pyramid and he lost. Ah, 2002. Uh, what are your favorite memories of seeing Mike Tyson in person? Uh, we couldn't believe how wimpy the fight was. He like wore a helmet and they were just like lightly pushing each other on the shoulder. It was not great. There was a Mike Tyson world tour in 2006 that lasted for one fight. And we happened to be at that fight in person. It was in beautiful Youngstown, Ohio, at what I believe was a, a rec center. I don't even know. It, I, yeah. I don't remember. It seemed big-ish, I guess, but I don't remember it being, it was like a, a CYC. I don't know what I, you would call I it. I remember it feeling like we were far away because we were broke at the time, but could still afford to go see Mike Tyson fight. That's true. He was fighting Corey Sanders, who was a fighter at one time, but was now very out of shape. And, and, and is now, I think, the lead singer of Nickelback, right? I, I believe that might be his follow up to fighting Mike Tyson and just getting his ass handed to him. But like, remember Tyson, it went on for a couple rounds and Tyson 
kind of was holding him up. Yeah. Because I think it, Tyson could have easily knocked this guy out even in 2006. You know, he wanted to give people their money's worth, I guess. So he was holding him up to just keep punishing him. Yeah. Just for showing up. Yeah. It was embarrassing. And that was why the rest of the world tour was canceled. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, I would say Michael Moore uh, had, you know, in conclusion, six months in 1994, best six months of his life. And then I believe he became Michael Lesser. <laughs> Who is Frank Lesser's son. And Frank Lesser, of course, <laughs> wrote Guys and Dolls. What's his brother's name? Like Dave Lesser? <laughs> Very good. Do you realize we make basically that joke on every episode? <laughs> do we really? We do. I noticed this, that we'll talk about somebody and be like, oh, what's his name? Like Fred Hammurabi? We do this every episode. <laughs> Okay, I guess we should tell our listeners where this came from. This was a joke on a roast of James Franco. Do you remember who said it? I don't. I don't. Um, I, some oh, apologies to that comedian, but some comedian made a joke about. I don't even know what the context was, yeah. but it was like that. Sounds like a made-up brother name, Dave. Hey, James Franco's got a brother. What's his name? Dave Franco. <laughs> Yeah. And it made us laugh so hard that we have made this joke for years. We we weirdly keep remaking this joke. I can't even guess how much what this is for 10 years. We've probably made this joke a thousand times. Yeah, probably. It's yeah. such a great joke. Yeah. Michael Moore uh, retired in 2008 after a good long career. He only lost four times. So that's really not bad. He was he was picking the right people. That's it. I'd, I'd say, well, yeah, I, you're it, right. Michael Moore had a great six months between you know april of uh 94 and november of 94 he he won the uh heavyweight belt at caesars in las vegas good for him he lost the belt at mgm across the street uh-huh. more or less across the street it's a little down i mean scintillating facts that we're dropping here today uh, and let me just say if i only fought weenies i could probably also only lose four fights so <laughs> i don't know well how many what's your boxing record how many fights have you actually lost I haven't lost a single fight. Oh, undefeated. Yep. Oh, well, see, then you should probably be getting your shot any day now, considering the way they were picking people to fight back in 94. I agree. George Foreman got beat by Tommy Morrison and then immediately got a shot at the title. What sense does that even make? <laughs> My God. Tommy Morrison, again, at that point, best known for being the third leading actor in Rocky Five. That's the whole career. He lost to Ray Mercer. I don't remember anything else about Tommy Morrison's career, but Michael Moore. Great run. Was the linear champion for six whole months. He's in the list with John L. Sullivan and uh, Joe Lewis and and Floyd Patterson. Question. Can we put out our listeners poll in some way that accompanies this? Because what I would like to know is what percentage of names that Joe dropped during the Michael Moore segment of the podcast had you heard before? (laughs) Because I'm guessing the average is going to be 5%. Oh, come on. If you were a boxing fan, I think you know at least some of these people. Maybe you don't remember Axel Schultz inside and out. I didn't even mention Razor Ruddick. Are you kidding me? Donovan Razor Ruddick? Get out of here. Smoking Burt Cooper? He was, he was like the owner on Mad Men, right? Smoking Burt Co- <laughs> Cooper. That's, right. That's what they called him. Smoking Burt Cooper because he wore a smoking jacket. And yes. then weirdly went and fought Larry Holmes. <laughs> As an old man, get crushed. Uh... Well, I, that was everything I could have hoped it would be. I really appreciate you coming along on the Michael Moore yeah. segment. I have very little to contribute, as you can tell. Just mostly jokes. Just I was concerned, though, like I would start and you would just stand up and walk away. And I'd have to <laughs> pretend you were still here. Like, oh, you got a sandwich in your mouth? You don't bother to answer. I'll tell you the answer. It's Ray Mercer. <laughs> oh, in my brain, that's what happened. <laughs> up here, I was checked out. 
no up here it was just okay where where can i put it upon where can i put it upon <laughs> where oh there it is michael lesser i appreciate it anytime well when we come back wait until you see what we've got lined up for the third segment because man it's a doozy <laughs> if you were bored now just hang on why should you care if some kid from across town drops out of school I'll tell you why. Because that kid and every other kid just like him is going to end up on the streets. And maybe they'll be stealing cars or dealing drugs or worse. That's why you should care about that kid across town. So get involved in your schools. Because if our kids go down the tubes, we go with them. And we're back. Excited. Get excited. Here we go. I mean, this is the one you don't even realize this is what you've tuned in for, but this is the free form, just gangbusters free for all finale of Michael Moore, Michael Moore, Michael Morris. So, so this is the Michael Moreist part of it, I would say as well, right? I mean, weird. it's supposed to be. And I guess you could make the case. I mean, Michael Moore is probably the most Michael Moore of all the Michaels. Yes. But there were a lot of candidates, I think, that could have worked here with Michael Morris. Again, there's the Glee director who famously cheated on his wife with Catherine McPhee. That's all I know about that guy. I think they're still married, though, so I guess they worked it out. All right. Great. So well, get it, Michael Morris, Glee director. He was in the running. So he, he was in the running. Baseball player Michael Morse. And then I think if you, if, I mean, Michael Morris isn't that strange a name. I think there were other people in history. But who we landed on was former uh, International Olympic Committee chairman, Michael Morris, who was the International Olympic Committee chairman from 1972 to 1980. I realize that doesn't exactly resound with 1994. However. However, he was still the honorary life president of the IOC. So he probably had something to do. He probably watched the Olympics, right? And like, how good do you have to be at your job to be named honorary person for life? That like, is pretty good. It's, that's an achievement no matter what you're doing. That's what I'm saying. So I feel like he was probably involved at, at least in a very supervisory, uh, you know, a, con a consultant type on the yeah. Olympics. Um, and so I think we've made the stretch to say that Michael Morris is instrumental in the 1994 Lillehammer Olympics. You know, I'm going to make the case because I feel like he was the president of the IOC at a dicey time. He became the president right after the Munich Olympics. So the Munich Olympics, you could have made a case after that. We should stop having the Olympics. Yes. I mean, that, that was not an Olympics that went terribly well. No. The next Olympics was Montreal, which uh, went way over budget, and they almost didn't finish in time to have Yikes. that ready. So that's not great. The 1980 Olympics was Moscow, which everybody boycotted. So Ooh. he was president during a pretty bad time, and yet he kept the ship afloat, kept it going. There um, you go. The 1976 Olympics were in Innsbruck, but they were originally supposed to be in Denver, and the, but the the city in De I, don't, I think it was just a regular vote in Denver. I don't think it was like the city council, but they yeah. voted against it. So no, that thank was you. It. Question: um, Where is Innsbruck? It's in Austria. Hmm. I want to say a right. lesser city in Austria. I'm yeah. sure Innsbruck's nice. You know what? I don't want to slam yeah. Innsbruck as being lesser than anybody. Second yes. to none. You can argue that it was lesser than Denver because Denver couldn't be bothered to hold the Olympics. So I mean, Denver was weirdly the first choice. Yeah. And then very rapidly, uh, the U.S. had the Winter Olympics in 80 and the Summer Olympics in 84. So they were trying to get on our good side. Yeah. But I think part of that was they didn't submit bids. I didn't realize that was as common as it was. In recent years, it's been we're just going to give the Olympics to somewhere because they're the only place who's willing to take it. 
But apparently this was going on back then, too. So interesting. But yeah, like 30 countries or whatever boycotted the 80 Moscow Olympics. Then the Russians boycotted the 84 Olympics in L.A. So, you know, Michael Morris, he oversaw some dicey stuff. Yeah. So I think you can argue also that any year in which there is an Olympics is a very important year in the life of the lifelong president, uh, advisor, uh, helpful person in the uh, IOC. Absolutely. He was integral to everything yes. until he died in 1999. <laughs> oh, so he had very little to do with all subsequent Olympics. <laughs> or is he like haunted? Like, Ooh, he's just in the why room. Why don't you think about Sao Paulo? When they're trying to make decisions. <laughs> Michael Morris was also uh, in the House of Lords. So he's actually uh, Baron Killinan from his historic peerage from his family from Ireland. So do we need to change the name of the episode to Michael Moore, Michael Moore, Baron Killinan? I mean, it would be more accurate. Damn it. <laughs> I'm sure his kid, who's the current Baron Killinan, is probably like listening to this. I'm sure he's listening to this. And he's like, oh, well, <laughs> maybe you should mention the peerage. But, I don't, you know, the peerage system in England, I don't totally understand. So I don't care. <laughs> but to keep going down this road, his son, who is the fourth Baron Killinan or whatever, they, they only started this line in like 1900. And he was the Baron for his whole, like for 70 years. So there's not been that many people who've sat in this seat. But sure. um, his son was nominated for an Oscar for producing the reader. Not bad. <laughs> No, is that not interesting? Random set of facts. I know, I know. I, I was trying to like just dig in and see what was here. So uh, Michael Morris, Baron Killinan, he he did like collaborate on some movies with John Ford in the fifties because he was a, a rich guy and a film fan. He's from Ireland, so he actually was like a consultant on The Quiet Man. Oh, and he was a producer on Rising of the Moon, which is a movie I love. I, I believe it's a set of four hundred film, The Rising oh. of the Moon. So. Without Michael Morris, where would we be as a people culturally? For listeners who have not uh, caught up, if you're interested in uh, reading about 400 of Joe's favorite movies, you can <laughs> visit his blog. I don't know if you're going to like post a link or something, but knowinglyundersold.com, the set of 400. I'm sure the set of 400 will come up again. So I just feel like we need to get that out there. I'm pretty sure this isn't the first time it's come up. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have mentioned in speed the same thing, but oh yeah, touche. Uh, I don't know what number episode this is. If the speed episode has already run, then you know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I liked that even saying of talking about the set of 400, you could barely keep a straight face <laughs> as though someone would want to read that thing. Well, I mean, at the end of this episode where we have literally just spouted random facts about uh, yeah. particularly, I mean, about all three of these folks, if you want more random facts combined with many more opinions, then the set of 400 is the way to go. Yeah, I don't believe uh, his son, uh, his name is Redmond Morris, who was Oscar nominee Redmond Morris. I don't believe he produced any films that made the set of 400, but he produced a, a good yeah. bunch of movies. I mean, dramas, Michael Collins, Notes on a Scandal. You'll remember the, the Kate Blanchett movie. Mm -hmm. So he's he's in the game. He's nice. the player. What's his son's name like? Redmond Morris? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> as many times in every episode as we can cram <laughs> that joke in, that would be just perfect. Uh, so I, the only other thing I really wanted to talk about, because I felt this was a good window to talk about the Lillehammer Olympics a little yeah. bit. We, we don't obviously have to talk about them much because... The one main story from the Lillehammer Olympics is we're not going to talk about now. It's just too big a story. Don't even think about it. Don't no. even say it. Yeah. I don't even want to mention it. Yeah. So instead, we're going to talk about Dan Jansen. Oh, Dan Jansen. Do you remember Dan Jansen? I do remember Dan Jansen. What do you remember about him? Uh, he was an ice skater. He was a uh, speed skater. 
He was a speed skater. Right. He was a skater. You were right. Yeah. <laughs> Thought he was a figure skater. Oh, no. No. Son of a gun. Yeah. No, the, the figure skaters that year. I don't even remember who the male, who won the male all around. That's how much of research I really did into these Olympics. I know Elvis Stoiko was the silver medal winner. Yeah. But the gold medal winner, no idea. I think I remember affectionately Dan Jansen because I once worked with a guy named Dan Jansen. Oh, was it? It might have been the same Dan Jansen. I, I'm going to go with no. Oh, he didn't look like an athlete. No, I don't know nice what Dan Jansen's post Olympic life was. Yeah, I don't but think he, he did was compete in four Olympics. Dan Jansen was a, a long time Olympian. Yeah. The, in, the interesting thing about Dan Jansen was that he came in fourth. He missed meddling in all of his previous Olympics. Like he was fourth over and over again. And then in Lillehammer, he finally won a gold medal on his last event. Like the last thing he did was win the gold. Oh. So it was a big dramatic thing when Dan Jansen won. That's great. Good for yeah. Dan Jansen. But no, in 84, 88, and 92, he, he I, I think he came in fourth at least once in all of those Olympics. So tough. He, he had yeah. a tough run. People were pulling for Dan Jansen. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he kept qualifying to go back is, you know, pretty impressive. Yeah. And he was getting up there. I mean, around this time, that 94 was the first time you had the alternate year Winter Olympics. So a lot of people have a lot of records from that time. Yeah. The other main person to talk about was Bonnie Blair. Do you remember Bonnie Blair? Yes. She was also a speed skater. Yes. She was the first woman to win five gold medals in either Olympics. Damn. And I, but it's mostly because they had Albertville and Lillehammer within two years of each other. So yep. it was you were able to qualify more because of the yeah. age. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but she ended up winning six total medals. So she was a lot. But that was why Dan Jansen managed to get so many Olympics in too, I think. And uh, it was just a great story. Yeah, speed skating at just the right time. Yeah. Speed skating was really all we did really well that year because... Again, there was the figure skating. We got some, there were medals, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, yeah. but we ended up coming in fifth overall, the U.S. We, Oof. I don't want to talk about it. We, like I was there. <laughs> I don't <laughs> have anything to, like, to do with it. Talking about the bears or the Red Sox, but America yeah. in 92, 94. Uh, no. Yeah. So the U.S. came in fifth in overall medals. Yikes. Who, who did we come in fifth behind? Oh, Russia was first in total medals uh, or no. Russia was first in gold medals. The list, I, I, I think Russia was first in total medals and Norway was first in gold medals. Nor, Russia, Norway, Germany, Italy. We usually, I think, typically do better in the Summer Olympics anyway, just because there's so many events and we're such a big country. So many, we send yeah. so many, we send teams for all sports. Yeah. Right. Um, like, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of international stuff. I don't, you know, it's the coverage you get, right? Like what I thought was interesting was when we were in Russia, it was right during the Sochi Olympics yep. and we weren't in Sochi. We were, we were in Moscow, but we were there like that week for yep. one of those two weeks and how much the coverage is local coverage. I mean, that's what you get, you know, yeah. like, I don't think you really think about it when you're watching the Olympics at home, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That you, you see all the like American events and Americans, you know, performing and, you know, it, it has a very American slant to it. So I don't think I really thought about that so much, but like, that's why that's the stuff I saw. And that's the stuff I know about, but I didn't think of it at the time. You always, everything's America centric and, it's like growing up and I, I only saw NFC East football games. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just where I grew up because that was all that was on. So yeah. that's all I thought of, really. But yeah, the only other major story out of the Olympics that's not the other story uh, was Oksana Bayul because I think everybody forgets about Oksana oh, Bayul. That's right. Yeah. She she took the gold, I assume. Right? Yeah, she took the gold. And that's, I yeah. think, the forgotten part of that whole story was that neither of them won. Like, it really was, you know, Oksana Bayul was like 16. She was like yeah. a, a little, I mean, I guess figure skaters tend to be younger but she was like a little kid and she won yeah. the gold and it was exciting yeah yeah because like 92 i would have been a little young for but i feel yeah. like lillehammer was like the first 
Olympics I really watched. And I think that's why I always like Winter Olympics more than Summer Olympics, because the first one I really remember is Lilhammer. And I loved figure skating. Loved it. Loved it. I mean, aside from all the stuff that was going on on our side, like I just liked watching it. Yeah. And and so I really remember Oksana Bayul. And I thought I really remembered watching Dan Jansen figure skate. But that's a lie. You, maybe he did. Maybe he like, did he join yeah. like one of those stars on ice tours? But he was a speed skater. So <laughs> just like, real fast. All dancing and he's just zipping around, you know, <laughs> wearing like a Mickey Mouse head or something and just flying. <laughs> Dan Jansen as Goofy in, you know. But uh, and Goofy runs by. <laughs> the only other thing I could think of that maybe Oksana Bayul landed something. But remember, I think Tanya Harding was like the first person to really try, do some some jump wasn't it wasn't that was even in the movie isn't it stunning <laughs> yeah, skating really commentary but, but isn't that right like a, yeah a, a, what is it a quadruple axle yeah she had some kind of axle? big jump that was hers yeah yeah i've always wondered about this as far as sort of these things where nobody did it before or like records when it comes to track is do you think that it really is some change in the way people train that makes now modern athletes able to break these records or is it just because the previous record exists and there's something to shoot for that that's why records get broken you happen to be right in my wheelhouse if you do set a more difficult goal you're more likely to work harder to achieve it so while we are even talking about like the limits of human physical ability like you'll train differently you'll so there's probably some of that that's going into it but also like modern technology how we fuel our bodies is different you know what we know about anatomy evolves over time how we're able to like support our athletes in their training is is different how we are able to prevent injuries is different and so i i think it's probably a combination of like modern science and goal setting theory if you mm -hmm. really want to get into myspace not not the not the website <laughs> no one wants your myspace link boots <laughs> see us at myspace.com slash it happened one year <laughs> well can we fashion some episodes around Goal setting theory? Is that something you can even come up with for 94? Heck yeah, I can. Who else was setting those goals? <laughs> I mean, the goal setting theory goes back a long time. So there's probably not a lot of new goal setting theory in 1994. But do you think there's any examples that apply to, say, the Montreal Expos in 1994? No. You know what? We'll, we'll table that one. <laughs> Apparently, that's not the direction to go when it comes to goal setting theory. <laughs> oh, uh, no. <laughs> ah, okay. You know what? Let's not talk about it. So that was the 1994 Olympics in Lillehammer. So so you think because this is the one you remember, this is what got you into the Winter Olympics? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Those Olympics were a lot of fun. Like I remember Albertville, Lillehammer, uh, Barcelona was 92. The, the summer games were fun. Yeah. And Atlanta in 96. So like there, those were a pretty good group of Olympics, I think. Yeah. I also just don't think I really watched the Summer Olympics as much. I don't know why. I Maybe it's because you're you're home and inside at night at, mm. in the winter and you're like outside doing doing stuff in the summer. And so I'm not I'm not so interested, but like as a kid. But yeah, I, I don't even really remember watching Atlanta all that much. And I remember that Barcelona happened, but I remember watching Lillehammer. Interesting. I had like subscribed to Sports Illustrated at this time. So like 91 to 95, oh, I was yeah. real into like all sports was really, you know, and 92 Barcelona was the dream team. So that's why I, I was really into watching that. And Atlanta, I think I watched a little less, but again, Atlanta had all that drama with the bombing. So yeah. I think that was, you know, eyeballs were on that as well. I remember also Barcelona was when I kicked off my whole thing where I would buy an Olympic t-shirt for every Olympic. Oh, yeah. Barcelona was the first one I had. So I remember like, you know, I don't know, getting it at the mall when I was a kid. 
but I even had the, there was a soundtrack to that Olympics that I had on tape. Yes. And I don't remember any of the songs except Freddie Mercury sang a song called Barcelona. But in that very Freddie Mercury, and Freddie Mercury had either just died or was, or, and like Wayne's World had just come out. So Queen was having this big kind of resurgence right then. That's all I really remember. I, w- I don't know where that tape is. I'm That's sure awesome. I don't have it. Yeah. I wonder if we could find that. Maybe we could dig up the Barcelona 92 soundtrack on vinyl. <laughs> we're we're going we're gonna to get right on that. Vintage. Because I want to hear that. So Michael Moore, Michael Moore, Baron killing it. <laughs> Michael Morris. I've been very excited to do this episode. And you know what? Totally paid off. Yeah, totally 100%, worth it. 100%. Yeah. I hope everyone loves it. Maybe we should switch things around and make this our first episode. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't I don't know that this is the first episode. <laughs> I don't know that like we put this up and people see that title and they're like, I guess I want to keep listening to this from now on. I, nope. I don't know that Al Cowlings is it either, but, you know. We're going to go for it. We're going to give it a shot. Well, I think that about sums it up. So... Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for uh, any extended interest you've had in this endeavor so far. Whether this is episode one or episode 100. It's not going to be episode 100. We, uh, there's no reason to sit on this for that long. We're not putting no. out that many episodes. We're recording an episode every four hours. <laughs> so we're just cranking through. I've got shit to do, man. I've got a job. What am I supposed <laughs> to do here? But anyway, if you want to uh, follow us, we're on Twitter. Weirdly, that is uh, it happened one year with the number one, I think. And again, you could look at the face at the we don't have a Facebook because come on, let's get off of that. Is it, can we give up on Facebook yet? <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg could suck it. Suck I it. do have a personal Facebook page, but oh, I'm I not creating anymore. I have other pages related to other things, but not this, <laughs> at least not at this recording. By the time this airs, we probably do. Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> I might find we have to. But we've got uh, an Instagram, which I realize is the same company. So it's hard to really <laughs> take this big yeah. stance. I was listening to a podcast the other day and like 5% of Americans say that social media makes our lives better, but like 98% of Americans have a social media account. Yeah. Something. It doesn't make any sense. Like, why are we still doing this? You know, we're so dumb. And like when I know people who have gotten off Facebook in in years past, I've always been a little bit like, oh, well, they're just out of my life now, you know, but then I'm kind (laughs) of like, I guess they had the right idea. (laughs) Yeah. This is something we all should have done years ago. And then, you know, maybe the, maybe the country wouldn't have gone completely to hell during the, uh, the last administration. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's end on a low note. Yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, everything's kind of miserable, and there we go. Well, anyway, tune in next time. I guess I'll try to do better. <laughs> on the other hand, what you do to pick it up, listeners, you can walk away from today saying you know more about Michael Moore, saying you know anything about Michael Moore, and saying you know very little about Michael Morris. You are welcome. I think we've read a lot of facts about Michael Morris, but do we know him as a person? No. No, not at all. And we don't know his son, Redmond. And if he's out there, you know, send us an email. Yeah. I think it's it happened one year at Gmail. Is that true? <laughs> I have no idea. We have a Gmail account. I don't know what it is. Oh, do we? Nice. Yeah, I had to create one to, to connect us to Twitter. I didn't want to nice. go through my own email. Oh, my God. <laughs> are you ready for the fun outro? What are we doing for the outro? It's again, you got to come up with a noise. Oh, That's right. Fun. Yeah, yeah. I got it. I got it. You got um, it? Here yep. we go, folks. Uh. Bluey. <laughs> I didn't what have it. Podcast, do you think this is? I did, I did not have it. We're going to try to do better next time. Have a good one, folks. Bye. This has been It Happened One Year. Please take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they allow ratings. Please follow us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow us on all relevant and irrelevant social media. 
See ya!